With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to TNTradio.live. This is State of the Nation on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. All right, launching into hour two of today's State of the Nation. It's February the 27th here in the United States, and I'm Brian McLean, broadcasting out of Central Texas. I'm here with Steve Hook from the Jersey Shore. Steve, here we go, hour two. Yeah, another big hour, another big hour. It was a good first hour. Uh, and this one promises to be strong as well, so good to be back. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And shout out to you over there in the interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. I see some uh, some shout outs in there going to Rick. Rick is a legend. Uh, so hello to you and everybody over there in the chat community at today's news talk. Great to see you. Thanks for being here for this live broadcast and to you as well for watching us, listening to us uh, wherever, whenever you may be. Now, Steve, um, a young man has reportedly been arrested in Moscow in connection with an attempted assassination of Tucker Carlson. Uh, according to reporter Simon Atiba, who we've spoken about multiple times, the man who has been arrested was reportedly being paid by Ukrainian intelligence to plant an explosive device in a vehicle used by Tucker while he was there to interview Russian President, President Vladimir Putin. Um, so he he tweeted out last night, uh, we were talking about it right when it came out, breaking attempted assassination of Tucker Carlson, man has just been arrested in Moscow, accused of being paid by Ukrainian intelligence, blah, 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 pretty much same thing I already said, of course. Now, um, this is interesting. I wanted to get into the, what I could find as far as facts go here, because there's uh, a lot of analysis happening. Um, so here's what I've been able to find. Uh, thank you, Gateway Pundit, for putting this together. Um, so the video has, that's been released shows a 35-year-old man by the name of Vesilev Petor Aleksovich, who claims he was ordered by the main dictorate of the intelligence of the Ukraine Ministry of Defense in November 2023 to take an explosive device to the parking garage of the Four Seasons Hotel in Moscow and place it under the vehicle used to transport Mr. Carlson. Mr. Alexevich claims he was going to be paid $4,000 for completing the task of attaching explosive devices to Carlson's vehicle, but he was detained in the planning process. Near the end of the videotape confession, the stone-faced alleged criminal admits his target was American journalist Tucker Carlson and says, I'm sorry for what I did. Now, if we trace this to the source, okay, this is like the important context here, um, is published at a website that I do not know how to pronounce. It's probably Russian, mvlehti.net. Um, the report is still not verified at this time. So, you know, we have to take this with a grain of salt. Um, the report claims he is a Russian working for Ukrainian intelligence. Um, clearly he was reading from a script in said video. He is a native Russian and uh, Russia says Ukraine tried to assassinate Tucker Carlson. Um, so there you go. What do you think? Real or just propaganda? Some people are saying he looks a little too, I don't know what, in the video. But I just wanted to throw that out there because that is happening and people are making a stink about it online right now, Steve. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, they are making a stink about it. And if it were propaganda, then guess what? It's worked perfectly. Uh, it's worked exactly as propaganda is designed to work. It gets a bunch of people talking about it, people kind of foaming at the mouth saying, oh, my God, we're pouring money into Ukraine while they're trying to kill Tucker Carlson, this kind of stuff. 
One thing, though, you know, I, I don't know if it's real. I, I don't know if this guy's just a uh, uh, just a fall guy uh, to, to, to make it look like the Russian uh, Secret Service or their equivalent thereof is on the job. Uh, and that's part of the problem, though, isn't it, Hash? I mean, as, as we mentioned yesterday, you just in this day we live. If I were to put a name to the to the uh, the the epoch that we're living through right now, it would be the cynical age. Um, and you can thank governments around the world for for creating this cynicism, uh, whether it's COVID, whether it's Russia, 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 whatever it may be. People are are a little bit uh, reluctant and and reticent to to buy into it. And of course, when it comes from Putin's Russia, you're even more reticent to buy into it. Uh, but I don't know, man. I you know I'm just glad that Tucker got out of there and he's alive and well. Uh, what do you think? Well, that's the question here, Hesher. What does Hesher think? Uh, well, you know, you, you say it's an age of cynicism, and, you know, I don't disagree with that, but I would say it's an age of propaganda, and the cynicism is a, a known uh, effect of the propaganda yep. age. So, you know, the, that's why we do what we do. We try to cut through propaganda or at least identify sources where we can and, and think about, you know, how much trust we can put in them who benefits, you know, what narratives are being supported here. And uh, yeah, this one, very interesting in that regard. I'm uh, I'm going to wait and see what Tucker has to say about it. Uh, last I looked, there wasn't a commentary from him, but I may have missed something in the fray here. So we'll, we'll circle back on that one. And Steve, real quick, before, um, before we go to a very brief break here, um, there's a second recall attempt that's been launched against California Governor Gavin Newsom. Uh, you can find this also at the Gateway Pundit. Jim Hoff did a write-up on it. So, uh, yeah, facing a recall effort once again. This is the second time and uh, re by Rescue California. So Rescue California served Gav Governor Newsom with uh, a notice of intent to recall, reprising their role from the 2021 recall attempt which we've covered a lot here on State of the Nation. So very interesting to see this happening, uh, rearing its yeah. uh, beautiful head once again. Uh, yeah, right in time for, uh, gee, I wonder if they're going to parachute Newsom into Biden's spot. Um, I have no doubt that this timing is not even a little bit coincidental. Uh, but when it comes to recalling Gavin Newsom, there's no time like the present, I always say. So go for it and good luck to him. Um, anything that will bloody him up is fine by me. And if I were a resident of California, uh, I would be all for it. Um, but of course, a lot of residents of California are no longer residents of California. And you are a perfect example of that, Hesher. So some people are already running for the hills. <laughs> Can't argue with that. I saw it coming a long time ago, though, man. I'm eight years yeah. gone, working on nine at this point. Hey, did you know there are many ways you can watch or listen to TNT? Why not stream us direct from our website on your desktop, tablet, or your mobile device? Of course, you can do that. Download our app from the App Store. We even stream live on X, YouTube, Rumble, and Odyssey. So we've got you covered on today's News Talk TNT. Giving you what you want. I want the fact. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to be joined now by our friend Andrew Langer. He's the director of the Center for Regulatory Freedom at CPAC Foundation. Of course, he's the host of the Lunch Hour podcast and co-host of Andrew and Jerry Save the World with Jerry Rogers and the president of the Institute for Liberty. Andrew, uh, it's great to see you again. So you're hot off the CPAC meeting. First off, tell us how it went and what some of the big takeaways were for you. 
Listen, it was a uh, it was a great uh, great couple of days. Very high energy, very well attended, despite what the left might have you believe. I mean, obviously, it, it started off great with the international summit that Matt and Mercy Schlapp put together. Uh, my panel on Saturday was fantastic, coming as it was just a few hours before Donald Trump spoke, and then Javier Malay, which to me really was the high point of the weekend. Listen, I appreciate uh, what uh, President Trump was doing on the stage. But Javier Malay gave a real barn burner of a speech, uh, and I was I was wrapped with with attention. Uh, but no, it was just it was just a a, a great uh, great couple of days overall. Yeah, it's it's great to see you, Andrew. Thanks. One of the things that one of the things that I uh, really loved seeing was when Malay went to Trump and gave him a a, a big hug and patted him uh, pat him on the back and I'm so honored, I'm so honored, I'm so honored. You can tell that he really was uh very appreciative of donald trump and really kind of looks up to him as a you know as as a as, as a great figure for liberty uh, trump of course got up there to get you know i've covered cpac so many years right and one thing one thing that i remember of covering trump is if you want to cover the trump speech that's fine do it from the hotel lobby where you can get up and hit the head when you want to because when trump gets on stage it's a oh. long two hours uh, but it was it was a great one. Go I got to tell you, it's so funny you say that because I watched from I had I had my staff speaker's path uh, 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 back and someone said, aren't you going to come in and watch it from the uh, auditorium? And I said, no, I'm going to I'm going to sit right here where there's lunch and there's snacks and there's drinks and there's a bathroom. That's yeah. you, you and I have both learned from past experiences. That's exactly <laughs> where you want to be. The, and, and let's not let's let's also keep in mind that the speech was pushed by an hour and then delayed because the president wanted to wait and and be there when Malay was was coming down as well. Um, I think that that admiration hash goes both ways. So it, it's um so yeah, so I I watched I watched from uh, I watched not from the auditorium because I do not like being confined anywhere for many, many hours, uh, let alone in a in a massive auditorium. <laughs> yeah and and what was the what was the general ambiance like there i mean are people excited for the elections are people Very. concerned like what what's what are people seeing as sort of the biggest pain points and the biggest opportunities coming up well I mean, obviously, you know, it, it's uh, um, uh, people are very, very excited and they're deeply concerned about Biden, which is why, you know, uh, President Trump's uh, uh, impressions of Joe Biden. And I'm normally someone very critical of such things. Uh, they 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 hit uh, they hit very well. He, he really he really nailed it. Um, uh, of You know, interestingly enough, there are some people who are still a little concerned about how the president handled covid uh, and, and some folks expressed that to me. Uh, and then, of course, there is this big debate over who Donald Trump is going to pick uh, as his uh, as his vice president. And those are some hotly contested issues um, where, you know, the CPAC straw poll essentially came back split between uh, Noam and, and Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, the reality is that you have folks uh, um, uh, who are interested in Tulsi Gabbard, while at the same time, uh, folks are there are some folks who are very turned off by this. I will say this. I made a bet with somebody, a friend of mine who will remain nameless. Um, uh, fifty dollars on the line. Uh, I I think Donald Trump is going to pick Tulsi Gabbard as his VP nomination. Uh, this uh, this other friend of mine thinks it's going to be Doug Burgum, and it's not someone who you would expect to say. It's not somebody from the Dakotas, from the Midwest, who was saying Doug Burgum, uh, and he gave some very compelling uh, reasoning for for that. 
Um, but uh, nevertheless, that's a that's also a lot of what's on people's minds. Yeah, well, I don't think it's going to be Doug Burgum. I just don't think he has the name recognition. And I just, you know, but let me, let me explain this person's reasoning. Why it, it was, uh, the, as this person said it to me, it's like Donald Trump does not like to be overshadowed by anybody else. And I will say that's certainly true for 2016, Donald Trump, whether or not it would have been true for 2020, Donald Trump, I'm not sure, but yeah, it's a, someone who is, is, is not going to overshadow Donald Trump on the campaign trail. Uh, someone who understands how to uh, run a government, uh, someone who brings some kind of expertise, um, and and with that, does Donald the the person then said does Donald Trump really need name ID? Um, I, I mean, I listen. I know there are folks who are critical, and this is not me endorsing uh, uh, Tulsi Gabbard as the as the VP nominee. I'm just thinking that Donald Trump is not the same candidate that he was back in 2016 or even 2020. That this is a Donald Trump who understands that he's got to reach out to some different constituencies, do some outside the box thinking Tulsi Gabbard is an attractive woman who's accomplished in her own right. Um, and, and who, uh, and who can possibly bring in some of those suburban independent women that the campaign so desperately needs. Wow. Well, I got to give a shout out to our wonderful producer, Kimberly. Uh, she's with your friend. She's, she's been saying, Doug, uh for a bit here so uh yeah maybe 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 she wants to get on in on that bet all i know is i have a really good friend who for months was saying that uh that uh, john mccain was going to pick sarah palin we're like who 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 and turned out he was right and and for the reasons that he gave he was he was correct well there you go well what about this government shutdown we're hearing uh rumblings of another looming government shutdown any you you learn anything about that while you're out any thoughts on this Folks are folks are talking about that. Were some folks were talking about it at CPAC? Not a heck of a lot of a lot of chatter there. I think in the end there is going to be there there is going to be an aversion to it. There's going to be some kind of CR uh, that is passed in the end. Um, but again, you know, this is this is Congress, the modern Congress, where if they can kick the can down the road, they will. In fact, real quick, that was part of. I did a panel on Saturday on Bidenomics and regulation, and that was something that came out of it. Was this issue of the post Chevron decision world. If the Supreme Court overturns Chevron, uh, this Supreme Court case about deference and, and that has given the executive branch such enormous power, Congress is finally going to have to do its job. Uh, so we're all uh, relishing that possibility. Yeah. Well, you know, Andrew, I mean, I, I just want to kind of circle back a little bit to this VP Please. pick because. Doug Bergram, I, I, you know, okay, if you don't want to be overshadowed, he's a great guy to pick because nobody knows who he <laughs> yes. is. Uh, I think he's a smart, I, I think he's a very smart fella. I mean, every time I heard him speak, uh, I was like, well, this guy's common sense. But if, if, if the pragmatic Trump steps up and says, I want to reach as many constituents as possible that, you know, heretofore may not have pulled the trigger for me uh, or pulled the voting lever, let me be perfectly clear. Sure, uh, yes, I get it. Yes. He he may he may say, well, Tim Scott's a great choice. Uh, it, it you know he he will uh, he will he can lean on Tim Scott in the uh, African American uh, urban com- centers. Uh, of course, you mentioned uh, Gabbard. I guess Kirsty Nome. A lot of people said that. Of course, a big concern for a lot of Republicans is abortion. Abortion and a lot of women are single issue voters when it comes to that, and right. maybe maybe a having a female on the on the ticket would help allay some of those fears. So if I were to bet you fifty dollars, it would be T- 
Tim Scott and in the it, it, uh, closely followed by uh by Christy Nome. That's that's my yeah, I mean Tim, listen, Tim Scott is 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 absolutely uh, someone who's up there in terms of the choices. I will I will tell you other folks other folks are saying Nikki Haley which is, you know, uh, it, which, which <laughs> you know, again, right here's here's the thing. Let's remember that that Donald Trump's 2016 run broke all the molds. And so we threw out kind of the old metrics by which we would gauge what was happening. Um, and so keeping with that in mind, I think it's going to be some kind of an unconventional choice. Frankly, I would put Tim Scott in in, in there as well. Um, you know, you can't cut out or count out uh, 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 Christy Nome, uh, despite the fact that allegedly she has really, really poor taste in men. Uh, I, I just, you know, I, I don't know if I could I don't know if I could support somebody who had even considered uh, engaging in an intimate relationship with Corey Lewandowski. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> hey, he's been on our show. All right, listen, listen, Corey's fine. Uh, you know, I wouldn't mind having a beer with him. I'm just not sure I could I could support somebody for vice president who had allegedly <laughs> uh, engaged in, in a relationship with him. Now, that was Andrew Langer that said that. Yes, that was, that was me. Andrew Langer saying that. <laughs> right. Disclaimer. Flash the disclaimer on the screen Please. now. <laughs> All right, Andrew. Well, hey, thank you so much. And uh, congratulations on finishing this phase of this year's political activities. And onward to the next thing. We'll look forward to having you back on again real soon. There's going to be much to discuss, as always. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week. All Take right, care. that's Andrew Langer once again right here on State of the Nation at today's News Talk TNT. TNT's Patrick Henningsen. So you see what's happening here. The White House is doing heavy spring cleaning, deep clean to expunge, to erase, to discredit. Believe it or not, even though this stuff has already been out, they're still trying to move to discredit uh, any talk or any evidence or anything related to the Hunter Biden laptop story and also any Biden corruption in Ukraine. So their hand is being forced uh, and they're not going to take this lying down. The White House certainly is not going to uh, capitulate to any of these allegations or charges. Um, the Republicans have been pushing forward, as everybody knows, with this House investigation, been getting very interesting traction. So now the deep state is moving into action to discredit any witnesses uh, and to write it all off as Russian disinformation. Sound familiar? Have we been here before? Of course we have. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT. TNT is an independent global news talk station that does what others only say they do. TNT is a live radio and TV broadcaster that simply tells the truth 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No one in the world does what we do. Crisscrossing the globe, providing credible news and opinion all day and all night. In two and a half years, TNT has become a credible and exciting platform with brilliant hosts and staff. It's a critical time, and we must continue to call out the misinformation and propaganda from mainstream media and their powerful sponsors. We're now appealing to our many friends and supporters around the world to go to TNTradio.live and make a small donation to TNT while we seek the right investors to continue our important mission. Are we on the air? Am I on the air? You're on the air. On the air 24-7, your news talk giant, TNT.
All right. Well, 2024 promises to be a very big year for our next guest. Coming up in March, it's Apple TV's presentation of Manhunt. This is a seven-part series based on James Swanson's 2007 bestseller, Manhunt, the 12-day chase for Lincoln's killer. So that's coming up in March. It looks awesome. looks like a great series. Stars uh, like Tobias Menzies of Game of Thrones fame. You also got, uh, he's going to be playing Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, by the way. Uh, Anthony Boyle will play the role of uh, John Wilkes Booth. Even Patton Oswalt makes an appearance as uh, U.S. General Lafayette Baker. Now, if that weren't enough, there's also a brand new book, and it landed today. James's new book, The Deerfield Massacre, A Surprise Attack, A Forced March, and A Fight for Survival in Early America, as I said, it hit bookstores today, and we are very happy to welcome New York Times bestselling author and American historian James Swanson to the program. James, congratulations on what's shaping up to be a huge year for you, man. Thank you. It's going to be great. I'm so excited about the miniseries, and the cast is just great. Yeah, I watched the trailer, and it looks it looks really, really good. And as an American history buff, I'm really excited about it. Why don't we talk about, we can talk about that. But this new book just hit bookstores today, and it's a bit of American history that I think a lot of people are completely clueless about, uh, because most people don't, when they look at American history, they think George Washington and everything that happened after. They don't, we don't look really back when we were still, you know, a colony of England, but that's where the Deerfield Massacre takes place. Why don't you walk us through the, uh, the story here? Yeah, this is a great action-adventure thriller from a lost America, from a period we don't know at all. This is 75 years before the American Revolution. George Washington, Ben Franklin, John Adams hadn't even been born yet. And this is a time of fear and superstition and Indian raids. It's an America we don't recognize or we don't remember at all anymore. Yeah, it, yes. it, it, looks, like, it looks like a thrilling story. Go ahead, Hash. No, it really does. And, you know, as I was reading about it on Amazon, um, putting it in my cart, by the way, uh, I, I was noticing just the the detail. I, we're talking about the year 1704 here with regard to the, the massacre. And um, I'm really excited to learn more about the ways in which American colonists or, you know, uh, English colonists at the time were um, what their relationships were like with various Native American tribes. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because it seems like there was, you know, uh, a French um, interests that were associated with certain tribes and colonist interests. I mean, that that is um, definitely something I'm looking to learn more about. Well, the, the French and the British were fighting for control of the North American continent, and each had their own native allies. The French came down from Canada on a 300-mile march with Iroquois, Hurons, Abnakis, and other tribes to raid Deerfield. And they attacked the town in the middle of the night by surprise. They killed 50 people. They took 112 people hostage and marched them back to Canada through the snow and ice in winter and then kill, killed many of them along the way. And so it was really a story of the many tribes and also the French allies of the Indians. So it was a joint force of 300 people that came down to wipe out this town of 300 people. And they burned the town, killed a lot of people, took hostages, and on the march back to Canada, killed even more of them. Yeah, I was reading some of it. It is... I mean, it, it really is. It, it it sounds like it makes for a great read, but good God, I would. I'm glad I didn't live it because some of the stories are pretty horrendous. Like one, some of the town leaders, even their even their own wives, as they would struggle on this 300 long, 300 mile long forced march, 
If they struggled and fell by the wayside, a tomahawk or a, or a war club came down on them, and that was it. They just uh, they, they just died right there on the side of the path, and the the train kept moving, right? Exactly. Well, when the Indians broke into Reverend John Williams' house, who's one of the great heroes of early American history, the first thing they did was murder his newborn child and murder another young boy. And then they killed their servant who took care of the children. And then on the march back to Canada, John Williams' wife, who just given birth a few weeks ago, fell into a river, got soaking wet, was freezing, and an Indian stepped forward and killed her with one stroke of his tomahawk. And that happened all along the way. Of the 112 captives that were taken, 20 of them were killed by the Indians along the way to Canada for slowing down, for being too young, for not being able to keep up. So 20 more of the villagers were killed by war clubs and tomahawks on the march to Canada. It was really a death march to Canada. Absolutely amazing. And then there was um, there was there were like ransoms, right? How many actually survived and 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 made it to Canada? Well, uh, about 90 made it to Canada and then more died on the along the way and some were starved in canada and then they were divided among the indians and the french and they were kept captive some of them up to 1000 days it was a few years before they even were able to return to deerfield some of them never returned john williams seven-year-old daughter eunice was held captive and she became a mohawk indian she was raised in the indian culture and she never came home again now be what, 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 an, and you're right. It is kind of a, a, it's, it's an, it's a blank slate for so many of us here in the States. Like I said, in the lead in, when we introed you, most people think 1776 and forward, but the colonies yeah. had been here for a long time prior to that. Yeah. And I, and now let me ask you this. If the Iroquois were teamed up with the French back in those days, who were the, who were the colonist allies in the native tribes? Well, they didn't have many allies down in Massachusetts. A lot of the Indians allied against them were up in Canada. And some of the Abnakis and others didn't want to join the raid, so they didn't. The colonists didn't have as many powerful Indian allies as the French did. I see. And so it was a strange and violent, mysterious time. The Salem witchcraft trials happened only a few years before the Deerfield Massacre. And that time, people believed in witches. witches witchcraft was real. Supersti superstition was real. Hexes were real. And it was a terrifying time. It was a time that we can't even imagine. The revolution had nothing to do with this era. And so George Washington and the other founders wouldn't have even known about this. It would have been a frightening time. People could go into the forest and disappear. Children could walk in the fields and be kidnapped and taken to Canada. Constant Indian raids were threatening Deerfield. So there's a whole climate of fear, superstition, and dread in Deerfield at the time this happened. Yeah. Wow. You know, um, I, I also noticed in some description aspects of the book that um, there were some stories of heroism from from the people of Deerfield. Some people were able to uh, stave off the assault uh, at their locations and there were um, reinforcements that headed in. Let me let me pick up right there after a brief headline with the station here. So hold the line. We'll pick up right there uh, with our guest, James Swanson at State of the Nation on today's News Talk TNT. All right, let's get this underway for our first order of business. TNT Radio News. For TNT, this is James O'Neill. 
French President Emmanuel Macron has stated that while there is currently no consensus among NATO members and allies on deploying troops to Ukraine, such a step cannot be entirely ruled out in the effort to prevent Russia from defeating Ukraine. Six members of the Congregation of Brothers of Sacred Heart and a teacher in Haiti have been kidnapped outside of school in the capital. The Supreme Court in Queensland has ruled that COVID-19 vaccine mandates for police officers and ambulance service workers implemented by the state government during the pandemic were unlawful. Why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all major social platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's news talk. TNT Radio. TNT Radio. Now, now, James, it is, uh, I guess it's widely considered that um, the, the, the colonists lost that, uh, that particular battle, but it was hard fought, right? There were uh, survivors and uh, some, some stories of bravery to go with that. Well, in fact, uh, the town was on fire and the whole sky was illuminated. And for, in nearby Hatfield, the residents saw the fire and they knew what it meant. They meant Deerfield was under attack. And the rule of the old frontier, you don't ignore it. You get on your horse and you ride to the danger. They didn't know how many Indians and French were there, if they'd all be killed, but they mounted up and they rode to Deerfield. And they rode into town while the attack was still underway. And they drove the French and Indians out. And then they pursued them and tried to rescue the hostages. But the French and Indians had laid an ambush. And there was what was called the Old Meadows fight. And they killed another 10 colonists who they trapped as the colonists were pursuing them. There was a lot of great heroism in that story. Reverend Williams is really one of the great heroes of early America. He tried to shoot one of the Indians. He fought with them. They captured him. His pistol didn't fire. And so there was great bravery among all the colonists trying to resist and preserve their lives and save their families. Wow. It just, I mean, you know, I tell you what, I, I just couldn't imagine living back in that era and, 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 and having to, I mean, you're fighting off starvation, you're fighting off winter, you're fighting off hot summers and you're fighting off Indians and French. Oh my. I mean, it, you know what it sounds like, James, it sounds like it'd make a great Apple TV miniseries one day. Well, I hope <laughs> to do that. Now that we finish with the Manhunt series, I think the Deerfield uh, Massacre is a natural for television. So I'm hoping we do that. Oh, that's there good does, to hear. Yeah, because there does seem to be a renewed interest in in these times. You know, I don't know if Yellowstone spawned that or uh, the one, Steve, you watched recently, the uh, the one with Leo in it. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, the Revenant? Uh, the Revenant. That's a great that one. Movie. Per, another perfect example. But there's a, a new film out with Leonardo DiCaprio on it on streaming right now. That's been very popular. Talking about uh, uh, Oklahoma. What happened in Oklahoma? Oh, oh yes. yeah, yeah. Colors of the Flower Moon. Uh, well, one of the go. reasons, for the, the interest. Uh, Tobias's series Outlander, which is partly set in early America in colonial times, I think is a resurgence. And plus, in 2026, we're celebrating the 250th anniversary of the founding of the United States. So I think there's a resurgence of interest in early America. And I think the Deerfield story is one of the most exciting and meaningful ones because it's a story of battle, blood, violence, religious wars, survival, endurance, and faith and family. So it has so many exciting elements. I, when I was reading about the book and I was and I was reading about the, a story, I read about the door. And apparently that's really the last uh, remaining vestiges of this time was this door that they all barricaded themselves behind and it still exists. And you can see where the tomahawks were whacking on it. Uh, what, what, a, what a 
scary time. I could just imagine being behind that big oak and iron door as tomahawks are raining down on it, knowing if they got through, we're done. And <laughs> they got true. through. Yeah. It's well, the door survives in a museum today in Deerfield. And you're right, the tomahawk slices are deep into it. And the Indians managed to cut a hole through the door, maybe four by five inches. They thrust a musket barrel through that hole and fired a wild shot and happened to hit and kill a woman. Now, what happened is the Indians never broke through the door. It stood fast. They couldn't push it through. They couldn't burn it down. They couldn't chop, chop it down. There was a coward in the house who knew there was a rear exit door, a small door, and he fled. He heard the tomahawks chopping and he ran away. He left that door open when he ran away. So the Indians came through the little back door and swept into the house and captured everyone and killed a few people. But the old Indian door withstood. It was a double-thick oak. It had hundreds of iron nails to, to chip the blades of the tomahawks. So that door survives today. It's really the great iconic relic of early New England. That's amazing. Wow. And and how has this story survived so long? Is it is it primarily from the memoir of Reverend Reverend Williams? I believe that's called the Redeemed Captive. Or yes, is, partly that. Uh, after Reverend Williams came back to freedom, he wrote that book, Redeemed Captive, and it's an inter interesting book. It's a few books in one. It's an action adventure story about the attack and what he suffered and what he saw and how the town was burned and how people were killed and how he tried to save them. So that's one part of his book. The other part is about the struggle between the French Jesuit Catholics in Canada who tried to convert all the captured people to Catholicism. There was a religious war between Canada and New England. I, I liken it to the, the fight in, in the 1950s of the Cold War between communism and, and freedom. It was that intense. They didn't think, they're oh, we're all Christians, we'll get along. No, there was a hatred between the, the French-Canadian Jesuits and the Protestants and the, the Puritans in New England. And so it was very real. And and so that was very much part of the story too, through, through Reverend Williams. We also know the story through his son, Stephen, who wrote about what happened him and he happened that he was a captive. We know it through colonial documents between the French and their masters back in France, between the, the colonists and their leaders in Massachusetts and Boston. So there's a lot of good documentation about what happened and what went on. Yeah, you know, James, I I just got to ask because as, as we talk about this, uh, the 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 books that kind of led to your book, as a historian, is is that what you gravitate towards? You see an interesting story that has not been told. You do hours and hours of research, and then it just pours out of you. How do you determine what you want to uh, to focus on, and what what kind of made you think this Deerfield story needs to be told? Well, I'd once lived in Deerfield. In college, I was in a historical program that studied early American history and studied Deerfield. So I lived, lived in Deerfield in a house that was before the American Revolution. I think I choose all my books this way. All my books are about death and assassination and blood and murder. The death of Martin Luther King, John Kennedy, Abraham Lincoln, the hunt for Jefferson Davis, and now the Deerfield Massacre. It's not so much that I'm interested in, in the blood and gore. I'm interested in key moments of change in America when something happens and changes everything overnight. And I think that's the theme that unifies what I write about, the, these dramatic moments of instant change in American history. Yeah. Interesting, well, interesting. That, that's what leads me to these stories. If James, if you had to nutshell, like if there was a, a nutshell version of the change that, that happened after that incident, uh, what would you call it? I would call it the fight over control of the North American continent 
the fight between empires of Europe who wanted to control America and the story of what happened and how much violence and suffering ensued and the story of the people who lived through all that. That's what I, that, that's how I describe it. It's wow. just, it's just really is fascinating. I mean, this happens at the tail end of the 16th beginning of this, uh, or the tail end of the 17th beginning of the 18th century. Uh, and, and like I said, most Americans are completely clueless about this. I suspect that after today, now that the book is on the shelves, a lot of people uh, will be reading it. God knows I'm going to get it. I'm, I'm just, I, just as an aside, uh, my wife, who is a manager of a bookstore, she just texted me and she goes, you did. She goes, wow, James Swanson. So, so you've got a fan in my wife. You should know that. Um, just real quick before we let you go. Uh, when does, when does Manhunt, uh, debut on Apple TV? March 15th, we'll premiere the first two episodes. And then once a week thereafter, we'll show the next five. Well, it looks to be a great miniseries. It certainly looks to be a great book. Uh, and James Swanson, I want to thank you for appearing with us today uh, on State of the Nation. And we look forward to having you back. And we look forward to reading that book as well. Uh, God bless you, sir. Thank you for being part of the show today. Thanks, guys. It was great to be on. Thank you. All right. Yeah, take care. There he goes. That's James Swanson. Very, very interesting stuff. All right. You're watching State of the Nation. We'll be right back on today's News Talk TNT. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. If you tuned into one of the three major cable networks on Saturday night at 7 p.m. when the polls closed in South Carolina to see how long it would take for Donald Trump to be declared the winner, well, let's just say you better have been on time. The polls have now closed at 7 p.m. We are waiting to see whether we will have a call in one direction or another or a too early to call. That has been the case in a few of the contests we've had. And as you can see there, and I'm learning this as I see it on your screen myself, we do have a call. We have projected a winner at polls closing. That was MSNBC, CNN was even faster in calling the race. Polling places are about to close in South Carolina. Five seconds left in the GOP presidential primary fight between Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. And right now, we can make a major projection. CNN projects that Donald Trump will win the South Carolina Republican primary, defeating former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley in her home state. And Fox News was just as quick. It is 7 p.m. here on the East Coast and the polls are officially closed in the state of South Carolina. Good evening, I'm Brett Baer. And good evening, everybody. I'm Martha McCallum, live here at Fox News headquarters in New York for our special coverage of the South Carolina Republican primary. And the Fox News decision desk can now project that former President Donald Trump will win the state's GOP primary. Yes, all in all, a good night for Trump, very bad night for Nikki Haley in her own home state. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT. Hi, I'm Susan Lucci. I never thought about heart disease until I had my own heart event. At first, like so many other women out there, I ignored my symptoms. A slight pressure on my chest, shortness of breath. I thought, I don't have time to be sick. I had a 90% blockage in my main artery and a 75% blockage in the adjacent artery. I received two stents in my arteries, stents developed through research funded by the American Heart Association. Those stents saved my life. I'm so grateful to the American Heart Association. Their research helped save my life. I can enjoy life with my children, my grandchildren, and my friends. Please 
Listen to your heart. The only reason I'm here today is because I did. Learn more about the American Heart Association's life-saving work at helpheart.org. You're with Brian McLean and Steve Hook and State of the Nation on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. So there's a battle afoot in Congress over the Affordable Connectivity Program, or the ACP. Um, management of the ACP is susceptible to fraud, according to the GAO. Um, yet 23 million Americans have benefited from this program. People like seniors, veterans, parents uh, of students, college students, um, even those that live in rural America and on its tribal lands. And this can affect things like your access to telehealth, your access to education, um, and many other things. So we're joined now by Joel Thaler, president of the Digital Progress Institute, um, to discuss this. Joel, welcome to State of the Nation. Fill us in on this affordable connectivity program battle in Congress and you know, maybe break it down for us. How does this relate to everybody? No, well, first, thanks for having me. Uh, and I think it relates to just about everyone who uses broadband in general, right? I mean, uh, what we've learned after COVID-19 is that broadband went from just some, you know, thing that your kid played on to now access to critical services, as you mentioned earlier in your monologue. Uh, and I, the big issue really became, okay, well, if everyone is going to be using this vital service or using it for vital services, how are they going to afford it? And the the answer initially was, uh, you know, throw out a how about we throw out a voucher and see, you know, like keep people online through the pandemic. People are losing their jobs. They don't really know how, they don't have access uh, to funds as readily available if the if the economy was open. Then it turns out that you know the issue got a little bit more complicated. I folks were continue to use this program, and they and it turns out that we were getting more. Uh, more buy-in from new users of uh, of broadband and because of you know veterans using it for telehealth capabilities you also have uh you know remote learning so a lot of the school choice stuff fits into this kids are you know are accessing all of their educational tools out there so you know parents need this as well and so the the general pitch was uh to ensure that every american can stay online in an affordable way and it seems like acp is now in the crosshairs of a lot of different conversations in congress specifically you know how are we going to fund it what uh what does funding look like and and, you, and look it, the program needs some work i mean we we definitely do need to do some uh some form some reforms so i think that those are the conversations that you're having in congress so the first is you know how are we going to pay for it secondly you know we, we it's been out for about a few years now we have uh we have some data on how it operates maybe it's time to look at how we make this program even better to make it more of a needs-based program as opposed to something that could potentially be rife with fraud and abuse and all those other horrible things <laughs> wait a minute now hold on breaking news Joel, are you telling me that there's fraud and abuse in government programs? Because I just, um, yeah, you see, that's just it though, isn't it? I mean, we talk about this program and it does sound good. And Lord knows during the COVID era, uh, which we look back on with uh, disgust and disdain, uh, people, kids especially were forced to go, go online. So I get it. It makes perfect sense. But what you just said there about the fraud and abuse, that's what worries me. Because when you start talking about a program that is going to rope in pretty much everybody soup to nuts across the board 
that's a lot of money. And that is that is uh, right pickings for someone who's looking to make a quick buck. Uh, how are they going to address that? How are they going to prevent that kind of, I mean, we saw rampant fraud during the COVID era. I mean, when people were uh, getting checks that they didn't deserve and, uh, you know, billions of dollars was just kind of frittered away. Uh, and I, I guess that's one of the main concerns here, no? Well, it certainly was, especially among Republicans. And I think they were there, and rightfully so. We had a few. The FCC also highlighted a lot of different issues in which, you know, the, the program had. But, the, but thankfully, there were some solutions that popped out of it. So for one, I mean, the big issue was eligibility, right? This like this is a very broad and massive program. So the first thing that I think the a uh, lot of the result, the things that we can resolve fairly easily to reduce a lot of the fraud and abuse is to address that first portion: who qualifies for this benefit, and and is this benefit specifically targeted towards a needs-based program? And if you compare this program, but look, the good news is for the ACP is that it's. If you compare it to other government programs, it actually is more of a success story than it is like this, you know, boon for, uh, you know, folks who wanted to, well, let's just say boon for bad actors. Mainly when you're, you're, you're saying, if you compare this to what the, uh, what the federal communication is the, or is the government organization that runs it. Uh, if you look at some of the FCC's other programs, I mean, it is actually a far superior program. I mean, look, if you look at USF specifically, which is the Universal Service Fund, which is what they uh, administer, it took the uh, FCC near a couple of decades to even figure out that we had waste, fraud, and abuse. I mean, th whereas with this program, we found out within a year and a half that there were some issues that we can that we can tweak. So on the on the one end, like it, the on the one end, that's a net positive where the moment we can figure out uh, uh, that when uh, the moment we can figure out that there are issues with the program, we can fix it. And I think that's the other benefit of the program is that it sits in the in the House of Congress. Like Congress has the has the keys to the kingdom here, not some bureaucratic agency like the FCC, who can you know maybe they're accountable to the American public, maybe they're not, uh, especially when it comes to government spending. Whereas if you have a, if you have the ACP, which is strongly tethered to a government appropriation, now Congress can make the decision to tweak the program as they see fit and also limit the funds to something specific. So I think that those are two, uh, so the things uh, that with ACP, when it comes to that kind of issue, those are easily remedied through a tweaking as opposed to just throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I mean, I see that it's noted that uh, approximately 80% of ACP recipients already had broadband services before receiving the federal subsidy. But that gets into a bit of a gray area too, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, maybe they had broadband, but maybe they weren't getting gas in the car every week or something like that. So there's got to be a way to sort of figure out who's eligible. Um, I don't know how to do that uh, fairly, but I'm sure there's a uh, smarter people than me out there that could figure that out if they really did want to support people. And, you know, um, uh, what about like the rural populations? We just spoke with uh, one of our regulars last week about how AT&T is sunsetting their copper wires, which is essentially going to turn people's um, old school DSL connections to the internet off in rural areas. And there's no um, incentive for the big carriers to come in and I don't know, lay fiber, put up new cell towers, do these sort of things because there's just not enough um, cust potential customers in the area. So um, th does that play into this in some way? 
100 percent. Look, you you noted, uh, I think, quite rightly that you you need a market case in order to go into these hard to reach areas. And before and, and let's and let's also break down just the numbers here. So the ACP maintains about. 25 million uh, households that are on on the actual program and about 5.5 million of those households are new users and first-time users like that is already a success story if you want to talk about government programs being uh, the efficacy of a government program but on the other end you're absolutely right i mean look inflation's an issue i mean we we have uh, folks are more or less worried about you know how much money is going to go into their gas tank than you know whether or not they can access youtube but uh, but this uh, program basically quells that at least to a certain degree. But again, the, as I go back to uh, broadband being more integral than it was even five years ago, again, we're not just talking about access to YouTube. We're talking about being able to be able to have not just veterans but low-income Americans in rural areas. And again, I want to point out that the ACP is doing very well in terms of its uptick in rural areas. So you're seeing more rural areas actually take this subsidy, and also more Republican districts uh, uh, taking the subsidy to to access broadband. So with that. You're starting. It, it, if you look at just those dynamics of those uh, districts, you, it makes sense. I mean, if you're a low-income person and you live in a rural area, your nearest hospital is about like 100 to 200 miles away. So if you have like a comorbidity or like diabetes or some sort of health, uh, health that requires you to constantly monitor these uh, those particular ailments, you need to have access to uh, to that doctor at near real time. You can't always just get into a car. Uh, fill up your gas tank, drive 200 miles to make an appointment. It's just as easy to go and have like a conversation like we're having here over a Zoom call with your doctor to explain your symptoms, to walk through potential remedies. And then if they if they measure out and they say, oh, well, that symptom doesn't make any sense, then you can make that that drive. Now you like that um, by leaps and bounds, that has completely changed the nature of how we use broadband. And also speaks to why this type of subsidy is necessary, especially when you see that high uptick in rural areas and that high usage of those households in in uh, specifically low uh, low income areas that are far away from any hospital. So veterans, yeah, very important. And obviously uh, our, our key beneficiaries, you see that the VA has actually supported this program time and time again. But the other end is like, look, just the average person dealing with a general comorbidity that was very difficult to treat because they lived in these rural areas are now becoming a thing of the past because of access to broadband. And, and now that you don't have to worry about the affordability aspect of it because this program deals with that in some way, I think that that's a win-win. I, I ultimately, you're, I, you get the healthcare you need. Well, at the same time, you're not worried about so much is that is that money going to go into my gas tank or is it going to go into my groceries or is it go to my broadband that's that resolves a huge problem but again that doesn't mean that this program doesn't need some work obviously we need to figure out the eligibility requirements and we certainly need to figure out what a funding mechanism looks like and how we can limit the amount of uh limit the amount of, of wasteful spending because that is top of mind for every republican and, and especially uh just the american consumer in general yeah, well, I mean, we'd like to think it would be on top of mind of every politician, regardless of their political stripe. But I get your point. Uh, and and the Internet and broadband has become pretty ubiquitous in the world today. I mean, you're kind of uh, almost Stone Age if, you, if you're not online in some way or another. Uh, as, as, as Hesher was mentioning, 
Uh, we had Hugh Odom on the show last week, and we were talking about this very subject and talking about perhaps uh, these rural communities losing their landlines. Uh, but the good thing about broadband is, especially with the with with the likes of uh, Elon Musk throwing Starlink satellites up there, you don't really have to have a huge infrastructure to get it. I mean, the technology is growing so fast that I would think that technology in this instance is kind of keeping up with demand, isn't it? I mean, if, if you're getting Starlink satellite type things, you could pretty much project internet anywhere you wanted, couldn't you? 100%. And I think that's the other benefit of this program is that it's tech neutral. It's not. So some of these other government programs that you'll see and you're, you're starting to see in you know, other issues with like that is mainly uh, administered through what's called the NTIA, which is a sub part of commerce. It's called the B program. Like you're seeing pushes to like go to straight fiber or like, or specific types of, of technologies. Whereas the ACP lets the consumer decide like, which one do you want? Do you want to pay for Starlink? Is uh, who's your local provider? I, you can get, you can use the voucher for all those things. So long as they have done that, the, the uh, that providers have the requisite things with the FCC, which almost every carrier has, uh, then, you know, I think that's that's another net win where now the consumer isn't looking for, hey, who built out in my network? Now you can actually reach out to a Starlink. You can reach out. And when when uh, Kuiper comes out, like which is going to be a competitor to Starlink in like the satellite space, that's another uh, option that they can uh that you know consumers can avail themselves to so i mean again th th this is where the program is uh, i think it, 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 for some reason it's getting a bad rap but in all reality it just makes it's a practical way to deal with the affordability question without having to go through burdensome regulations like like you know like net neutrality requirements or rate regulation this is a this is one way you could combat that and also give the consumer what they want and make sure that it, but all you have to do is make sure it's targeted and, and it gets to the people who need it the most yeah, yeah. Now, um, so with regard to the pushback against this concept, is that coming primarily from the Government Accountability Office, or are there corporate interests involved? I mean, I could see perhaps some of the big three uh, communications networks saying, hey, this is taking money out of our pockets. Uh, is there any sort of lobbying in effect here that uh, people should be aware of? So the good news is, is that when you do uh, personal vouchers, like you basically, industry is virtually uh, almost unanimously aligned, which is very weird for a telecom lawyer to say. Usually you have to, you know, uh, you're usually parsing out who has which benefit where, but uh, on on the whole, whether you're a large carrier, small carrier, cable, satellite, uh, wireless, you basically agree that uh, ACP is the way to go. In terms of the pushback, it really comes down to what is the purpose of the program. And you're seeing a lot of the pushback, not really from the GAO, but you're seeing, you know, interpretations of a GAO report, like from, from you know, Senator Cruz obviously is not, uh, is not a big fan of uh, government programs in general, but specifically doesn't, you know, like it when, you know, government programs programs go off the rails and rightfully so he should call that stuff out you should be able uh, you should be a watchdog on this to make sure that you know at the end of the day these funds are not being misused so again but you're seeing you know uh republicans come to the table as well and look senator cruz senator wicker and all and, and actually jd vance in particular they all have been able to come to the table and say look these are the reforms we want these are the ones we want to see and they're putting their money where their mouth is, and like they're and they're not, and they're walking the walk. So I guess that that's something. There's something to be said about this. That it's this is this is why it's a pretty bipartisan issue, and I think that ultimately we're going to see you know a lot of positive movement in in, uh, in the next coming uh, month or so. All right, 
Excellent. Well, we'll have to have you back on for an update on this. Digitalprogress.tech is your website. Anywhere else you'd like to point people to follow your work in the next couple seconds? Uh, you know, uh, just Google me and find me on Twitter. I'm, I'm always saying something crazy. All right, Joel Thaler, thank you so much for joining us again. Digitalprogress.tech is the website. We'll have you back for an update on this. Maybe call your uh, representatives and ask them about this, all right? Stay tuned for Misty Winston coming up next here at TNT.